0: Well hello and welcome, glad that you are here. The elders and I are glad that you uh, set aside time to learn about this critical issue. You should have a packet of notes um, in the back, Uh, identity crisis at the top, some other resources on the table. There's a few books for sale as well as some additional printouts from Focus on the Family and some other resources back there so check those out uh, please. Um, As we all are well, well aware, the transgender movement has overtaken our culture by storm in the last few years. And even just a few years ago, the idea that one's biological sex could be viewed as distinct from one's gender was was a foreign concept to most of us. And now look at where we are in 2022. But the reality is that for decades, we've seen indications that our culture is moving further and further away from a biblical worldview, from morality even from basic concepts of biology and reality. Back in 2015, we began to see some troubling trends. The US Supreme Court was on the brink of making a decision to legalize gay marriage in all 50 states. And while the gay rights movement was in full swing, the transgender movement only seemed to be a whisper, even in 2015. But the Christian community knew that that Supreme Court ruling would be a watershed moment. And so, in that spring of 2015, the elders launched a seven week series called Pillar in Light. We talked about the upheaval happening in our culture, the calling that Christians in the church have to be pillars of truth and lights to the world. And we looked seven years ago at God's design for humanity, sexuality, marriage, and gender, and how we should respond in light of growing confusion. Um, That yellow handout on the back table is a summary of that Pillar and Light series, and this seminar today builds off those foundations from seven years ago. If you have the note packet in front of you, you'll see that the first part one, the first hour, we're going to look at understanding gender ideology, and Pastor Matt is going to take us through what modern gender ideology is, define some key terms, look at the cultural background of how we got here, and how this movement has found Broader acceptance in the culture so quickly. Um, He's also going to help us look at at several of the faults and the dangers of gender ideology. Um, We'll take a quick 10 minute break because we have a lot to cover, and then we'll come back for the second part and look at our Christian response. We'll look briefly at at God's vision for male and female, how to talk to our children about this gender crisis, and then how we can respond with grace and truth. Um, in, in your families, in your school, in your workplace, in your community, and even here in the church. Um, we hope to save a few minutes for questions at the end. We'll see how fast uh, we can talk. Um, but the reality is, um, this is an important topic. It's one in which uh, Matt and I have, have done some study on, but we do not have all the answers and we're not going to address all of the issues tonight. But we do hope to give you some good background to establish some biblical categories, and to give us some direction for how to think through these complicated issues. Now listen, I'll be honest, there's part of me that would would like to just put my head in the sand, Um, but that is becoming harder and harder to do living in this world. And the truth is that while this season seems new and seems exceptionally difficult, the truth is that followers of Jesus have always lived in a broken world in a confusing times. And we have always been called by God to be wise, to be discerning, to be engaging. We've always been called to be ambassadors for Christ, living in the world, not of the world, to speak truth, to speak the truth of God, and to speak the hope of the gospel. And so even now in these dark, challenging, confusing times, that is what we must do as God's people. And so I'm going to invite Matt to come and and let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. God, we do ask for your help, even as we gather now as the body of Christ, as men and women, as young men and women eager for answers and direction, we ask for your spirit to guide us. Lord, these are heavy, confusing, difficult realities. Um, our culture is, is shouting one thing, and your word is, is clearly speaking another. And so, God, I pray for both Matt and myself and all of the listeners that you would give us grace to to see your word clearly, to see the picture of truth clearly, and to speak boldly and confidently to offer grace and truth to those that are in darkness, that are confused. And so bless our time. Help us. Help us, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Amen. Thank you, Pastor Tim. So we're going to start in part one, understanding modern gender ideology. So what is the main idea? What is going on with gender right now? Pastor Tim alluded to this, but it was June of 2015 when the Supreme Court decided the landmark case of Obergefell versus Hodges, which ruled that marriage was a fundamental right equal, equally open to same-sex couples as it is to heterosexual couples, and this must be respected by all the states. And this was after years of debate within the culture. Many of you can remember that, what that was like. But there was debate as to whether or not homosexuality was innate. Was it a choice? Was it something people are born with? Uh, was it changeable? And then there was also debates on what is the nature of marriage. And one thing that really stands out is just how quickly public opinion changed. Just to, just to kind of make this clear, within a few years, let me give a frame, of, a, a frame of reference. In the 2008 presidential election, which wasn't all that long ago, uh, The Democratic candidates, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, John Edwards, and Joe Biden, all publicly opposed gay marriage. So that's not that long ago, right? And all all the Republican candidates did as well. And you can see already how how much things have changed just on a political front, right? It was only seven years later after that time, after that election, when gay marriage became the law of the land. As I mentioned, the June 2015 date, it was only two months prior to that, in April 2015, that something odd happened that really captured the fascination of Americans. Bruce Jenner, the handsome Olympic hero who would become a reality TV star with the Kardashian family, revealed publicly that he was no longer a he, uh, but a she, a transgender woman. Call Me Caitlin, if you remember, was the, was the uh, title of the Vanity Fair magazine cover. And at that time in the LGBT movement, the LGB was really the, the, the focal point. And the tea was, we really didn't know what to do with that. It was included, but it wasn't the focal point of the movement. But now here we are seven years later, and the debate is very different today. We're seeing, if you pay attention to the news, you listen to podcasts, you read, you're on social media, you're hearing about things that just seem to come out of nowhere. You're hearing about things like drag queen story hours at libraries. You you may go shopping at a store and see somebody who is, uh, you know, a man who is, wearing makeup and, and, and long nails and, and appearing like a woman. Or you're, you're hearing more and more about uh, athletes, male athletes, who are playing in, in women's sports and oftentimes breaking records while they're doing so. Sadly we also read about girls in their teens having top surgery to remove their breasts so they can appear more masculine. Some of you are experiencing workplace situations where you're being asked to share your pronouns or to respect the chosen pronouns of those people who, who offer them. Maybe someone you know has begun to question their gender, has begun to question not only their sexuality, you know, who, who am I attracted to, but who, who am I? What's going on, right? This has happened very quickly, and it's kind of hard to keep up. And it's very, and if you're like me, you're probably having a wave of different emotions about it. Confusion, sadness, frustration, anger sense of maybe hopelessness at times, mourning, it is hard to keep up. But you, uh, there's a phrase that I, I come back to a lot as we're, as we're thinking about what's going on in our culture. Uh, some of you may know John Stone Street. He's with the Colson Center. He does a podcast called Breakpoint. And he has this, this uh, phrase. He says a lot, ideas have consequences and bad ideas have victims. Transgenderism has taken over our current cultural moment. It's fascinated a generation. and I believe this is, I'm just going to lay my cards up front, this is a bad idea. It's a false narrative that's divorced from reality. It's a deadly prescription for people who are really hurting, who are struggling to feel at home with their bodies. And I think the church has a unique ability and a unique call to respond So first, I'd like to help you understand some of what's going on, what are the current ideas that are fueling uh, the the debate on gender as it is today. So I hope to bring clarity a bit to this, and I'm not going to be able to touch on every aspect, uh, as we mentioned earlier, but I also hope to assess this movement, offer some critiques of it, because I believe this is part of our duty as pastors and as elders to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, that we all can attain maturity, that we're not tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, Ephesians 4 says. But also, Paul talks about this. He says this, yes, we are called to love people and go forward with the gospel, but part of that means that if there are um, ideologies, philosophies that are on the offense against the gospel. That's why Paul says things in like St. Corinthians 10. He says, for the weapons of our warfare are not against flesh, but have divine power to destroy destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. And so when we look at this, I want to say that we are not warring against people, but against ideas, against every idea that presents itself as the alternative to the gospel of Jesus Christ, which I will believe that what we're hearing right now is another gospel, which is not a gospel at all. Secondly, I want to encourage you on how you can engage people with grace and with truth, whether that's your neighbor, your coworker, your friend at school, your own son or daughter. But I, I'm going to try my best to summarize the popular ideas surrounding gender identity as kind of a starting point, um, to help understand what the culture believes. This is my attempt at it. So here it's, it should be in your notes, but the general idea that we're dealing with right now, this is kind of the waters we're swimming in. There's a belief that there is a distinction between a person's sex and their gender. And that gender is the more important part of someone's identity. And that it can only be known by the individual. So there's kind of three parts there. Of course we could say much more, but let me just kind of describe in in these, these three parts. First, the idea that there's a distinction between a person's sex and gender. Long we've understood that a person's sex is biological, it's objective, it's something that can be known. And it's still, even today, widely accepted as binary, male and female. And this is something that, generally speaking, is identifiable at birth. We, and gender is not a synonym in contemporary thought. Actually, gender is a word that came up, I believe, in around the 1950s. So it's not a word that's been around for a very, as far as referring to people. Um, it's not a word that's been in contemporary thought for long to describe people. And though many of us kind of use those words often interchangeably, gender and sex, because we don't want to say sex, because we don't want to differentiate from the act, right? So we say a person's gender. But rather, there's this idea that gender is something distinct from sex. Gender refers to the attitudes, the behaviors, the expectations in a given culture for how a person will express their biological sex. So some common examples, right? Without common, but... The idea that a girl will wear dresses, have long hair, wear makeup, play with dolls, be mothers, and that men will be aggressive, will have short hair, grow beards, be strong, build things, be leaders. In the past, and in really most cultures, the the traditional view is that your body told you who you are, right? A person's sex determined their gender, like, hey, if you're born a male, then you're to be a man. If you're born a woman, you're to be a woman. And therefore, if you're born a male, you're to act like a male, act like a man, dress like a man, take on traditional male responsibilities, and the same for females. But now the idea is is that is, is incorrect, that a person's gender may diverge from their biological sex, that your body may tell you the truth, or it may not. That you may be a male sexually, but express yourself in more feminine ways, or be a blend of both, or fit into neither categories. And so just really there's this common idea right now that sex and gender are not the same thing and that they don't always line up. Secondly, the idea is is that gender is the more essential aspect of a person's identity. If, If you are, you know, both body and soul, what is the true you? What more defines who you are? What carries more weight, your body or your spirit? Your height, your hair color, your skin color, your your sexuality, those define you and do give you identity. That's true for some, but others do not find themselves at home in their own body. But they actually feel a strong incongruence between their body, who they are on the outside, and who they are on the inside. Who is the real you? And there's a general sense that the inner you, that's the real you. That's that's the true you. Your body may not reflect, your body may or may not reflect this internal reality of what you are experiencing so rather than your body telling you who you are and you therefore conforming to your uh, your attitudes behaviors your dress the expectations you know that your body would inform you of uh, your gender your felt or experienced identity that really sets the tone and the body should follow suit so like it's kinda been inversed who you feel you are who you believe you are the experience the strong emotions that you have some would say, that should set the tone and your body should follow. Now, and and of course, how is this achieved? Well, it has to be achieved by altering one's appearance through dress, hormone therapy, or surgery. Thirdly, the general idea that you hear about modern uh, gender is that a person's gender identity can only be known really by the individual. Perhaps you've heard the phrase, you know, a sex assigned at birth or really a gender assigned at birth. And it can be a bit confusing because you feel like, is that really assigned? You know, like handed out? It's almost like an odd phrase. And it can be a bit confusing, but the statement reflects the idea that while a person's sex can generally be identified at birth, their gender cannot. Now, I I will step off and say that there is kind of a side issue I'm not going to spend too much time on. But it's the idea of of intersex. Um, So this is a situation, it's a congenital um, uh, condition where somebody is born uh, with uh, their their sexual organs are not developing in the way where it's, it's, it could be ambiguous or not clearly uh, able to be recognized, so it's, it, sometimes it could be a deformity, sometimes it could be just something that happens within the womb, but there are very small portions of the population that are born where it's actually hard to tell from a person's sexual organs, you know, what their sex is, and as a baby that's hard. Um, but we do believe that that that's something different where an intersex person is dealing with a medical condition. Transgenderism is an experience or an identity. It's tied to emotion, so there is a difference. Sometimes the transgender movement tries to co-opt that, but I do wanna say there's a separation there. There is a whole nother, uh, that's a whole nother big discussion and it it is certainly hard uh, when when parents are are dealing with that. Um, But just to say, in, in most cases, you know, you can, say somebody, you can understand what somebody's sexuality is, or their sex, I should say, when they're born. However, um, the current idea is that while your sex may be known, your gender identity cannot be known. So, it's assumed that if you're born a male, that, well, then you're going to grow up to be a boy and a man. But that may change, is the idea, because only that child or only that person really knows who they are on the inside. So the assumption is, is while sex can be objectively known, gender can only be experienced known by the individual. And so really whatever they say, they are, they truly are, and should be accepted as such. So the body is no longer considered authoritative, but a person's experience. Does that make sense? And so really, I think those three things, they don't say everything, but I think they say a good bit about where we're at right now. The idea that sex and gender are not the same thing that gender is the more essential aspect of who you are, the true expression of who you are, but only the person can know it, so everyone else really has to take your word for it. So uh, I want to define a few terms. I've already kind of defined biological sex. I have all these definitions here. Uh, The definition between biological sex and gender, gender being the attitudes, feelings, and behaviors that a given culture associates with a person's biological sex. But these next few, few phrases I want to point as, out as well, you hear this phrase, gender identity. This refers to a person's self-perception of who they are, whether they're male or female, masculine or feminine. What do you feel or experience or believe you are? That's your identity. And there's a related term, though. It's not the same thing, but gender expression. And this describes how a person goes on to express themselves publicly in a gendered way. So, for example, a person, you know, may, may you know, I'll use myself as an example, right? Let's say that I, you know, I'm a man, I'm a male, but I, my gender, let's say that in this situation, my gender identity would be that I feel that I'm actually really truly a woman. Well, I may have that identity, but then not express it by actually dressing or appearing like a woman. That's what, that's the differentiation between those terms. Cisgender, If you ever heard that phrase? This is, this is what's used when a person's self-perception of their gender matches their biological sex. So that's 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 the the I would say the normal uh, experience of people. You're born a male, you believe you're a man, and vice versa. This is how often our LGBTQ people refer to those who are not transgender. So we come to gender dysphoria, and this is a really important one, right? This refers to psychological distress that comes from an incongruence between one's sex assigned at birth and one's gender identity. And I wanted to point out that this is actually like a really important thing that and it's not something we should dismiss that there there is a lot of people and an increasing number of people who really struggle with this that really have a genuine psychological feeling that their body is lying to them that they don't feel like they're at home for any number of reasons and that should should what anything else beyond just the movement at, at all like it should really raise up compassion within us when we see people, because we are all born in sin. We, are all, we all come to this world confused, and that works its way out in different ways. But there are people who, are, who have a strong uh, feeling within themselves that they're not at home within their body. And there are degrees of experience with this, some mild, some severe. And some, it seems like most people who experience it young in life are actually able to kind of move past this. It is kind of like a phase, but there are some who don't seem like they're ever able really to shake this off. But whatever it is, the psychological term is gender dysphoria. Studies have not been conclusive really as to what causes this. And then finally we come to the word transgender. And this is really an umbrella term that that refers to a person expressing a gender identity that does not match their biological sex. And as you know, definitions and genders and you know, have really kind of exploded, you know, and there's a huge list of them. On Facebook, you can list your gender, and I'm, that number has been increasing, just in, increasing, right? So, the, so, a transgender is somebody who not only is experiencing gender dysphoria, but who has gone the extra step and is expressing a gender that is in some way different than their biological sex. But this is what I wanted to point out that, that gender dysphoria is an experience, right? It's a strong emotional trauma. My body's lying to me. I, I don't feel at home in my body. There's something, I'm not, I don't feel right. That's an experience, right, that doesn't always end in transgenderism, but a a transgender person is someone who says, well, this is who I truly am, and they go forward and and make that their identity. So the question is, that that was all just my best attempt to kind of explain what we're seeing in the world, and and there's much more to say, and, and I'm sure there's things I left out, but hopefully that's a good summary that sounds at least something like what you're hearing. But how did we get here? In his fascinating book, *The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self*, Professor Carl Truman considers this statement: "I am a woman trapped in a man's body." He explores how did that particular statement come to be regarded as coherent and meaningful, and he notes that his grandfather died in 1994. And if you would have told his gra- if his grandfather would have heard that, he would have said, "That's that's gibberish. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever." You know, and that's only a few decades ago. But now, however, if someone was to say that same phrase, I am a woman trapped in a man's body, it would not be, be written off, you know, as deep confusion or mental illness. Rather, it would be celebrated probably as a joyous self-discovery, a courageous declaration that should be celebrated and protected. That's a very quick change in, in, in where we're at in our culture. So how did we get here? Okay. So let's talk, so there's going to be a lot of phrases and words, and and, uh, I'm going to throw out here, so do your best to keep up. So let's talk about, let's go back uh, and talk about different areas of philosophy. So we're going to talk about the Enlightenment versus Romanticism. Uh, There's a book on the back table called Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy, and uh, I'm indebted to her for this argument. But she basically says that um, all modern philosophy can, you know, has been divided basically up into two streams. The first followed from the scientific revolution, right? The enlightenment of the 18th century, you may have heard of it, is called the age of reason, right? The age where where science was really hopeful, we were really hopeful that science would answer the biggest questions and solve the biggest problems in our world today. So philosophers of the enlightenment began to look to science and reason as the means by which we can discover truth. Science became the authority, as opposed to, for example, the church or, or something else. Right? So, so, you know, we're, if we're going to learn truth, if we're going to advance, we need to look to what is objective, what is measurable, what is observable, what is provable. And there's, there's different, you know, uh, different um, views that came out of this materialism, empiricism, rationalism, naturalism, um, evolution as a theory really flowed out of this mindset. What is provable, what's observable, what's testable, what can be reasoned? That is what's true. And this eventually gave way to modernism, and there's certainly some very good things that came out of that, right, out of the scientific revolution. But one outcome of this movement is it began to look at the world as a very neutral thing. Whereas before, you know, there was this idea that God made the world, and and since God made the world, he made it with intention. And, And Christians, we believe this, right, that God made the world with intention. So when you look at the world, you get hints, God's giving us hints at the way things are supposed to be. Right? But during this, but during this time period, during, through this movement, there was the idea that the physical world that's studied by science can tell us what really is the real story, but it can't tell us why. Right. So, so you'll you'll you'll, you'll hear about you know during this time there's a description of of, of why the wor- you know, of what's going on in the world, a description of, for example, biological evolution as a, as a theory of devel- human development, but it can't tell why things happen. And often there's this idea like, well, there's no reason why this happened. It just did. Right? So, the, so, so so with that, it's, it's interesting how it began shaping the way that we think about the world. The world is just what it is. There's no reason why it is the way it is. It's just this is what we have. And I think the transgender movement really applies the same logic that we get from that stream of philosophy to our bodies. I'm born a male with male biology through and through. This can be observed and tested and verified, but that doesn't tell me how I should live. My body doesn't give me any clues on how I should be or how I should conduct myself. There's no moral imperative about how I should live my life because, just because I'm a biological male. The world of the Enlightenment really removed meaning and purpose from the physical world. A reaction to uh, the Enlightenment and rationalism is the, uh, from the modernist movement was romanticism. And these philosophers that focus on the values of justice and freedom, of morals and meaning, things that are important but not tangible, not measurable. You can't apply reason the scientific method to these other things that are important. They felt that these things were lacking. And so instead of reason, the romantics favored the emotions, the imagination. It tended to look at truth as more, something more subjective, something experiential located within the individual. Or science may teach us about the physical world, but what can teach us about beauty and morality and love and meaning? These are issues of the soul and our personal and experiential. Well, there's a whole lot more to say about all these movements, you know. And, uh, but for our purposes, the major consequence, I think, is that now you have two worlds that we're living in right? One is this, these two separate realities where there's now, you know, we Christians believe that we are body and spirit. We're one, but now there's been a division. There's the physical world over here, and science can tell you things about that, but if you want to learn about, you know, the emotional world, morality and truth, how you should live, well, that, that's something different. That's very personal and intimate, right? And so there's like this mental division in our moral imagination, right, but how, how these things have been disconnected, Right? So God made me a male physically. That means we, be, I, we believe God made me a male spiritually as well. This informs how I'm supposed to live my life. But that's not how the world really thinks about these things anymore because these two different streams of, of philosophy have kind of intermingled. So I'll give you an example. That's why someone can have a yard sign that says science is real and then two lines lower says trans women are women. And you're thinking like those two things don't seem to, t- to line up but that's actually kind of part of it. Because science can tell you some things, right? You know, but it can tell you about your physical body, but it can't tell you about your spiritual body. But there's this division. And so I think that that's kind of an interesting starting point. There's, there's, this has been playing into our moral imagination for a long time. Secondly is relativism. And there's this idea that there's no, mora- no morality, no one way of living that's true for everyone. Relativism is a product of postmodernism, which flew kind of, kind of out of romanticism. It says that there's no one universal truth that's true for all people. There's no right and wrong that's binding on everyone. There's no truth, there's just perspectives. There's no grand narrative, no purpose behind everything. There's just opinion. And because of this, there's this belief that if, if someone is insisting that there is one God or there's one way or one moral law that's binding on all people. That's not only seen as rude, oftentimes people are suspicious. They say, why would you say that? That's just you making a power grab. You're trying to use this, this, this large story to, you know, to, to, to gain power for yourself over people, rather than let them decide for themselves. And so phrases like, live your truth and do what works for you are phrases you may hear. And it's interesting, I think formerly relativism was really an argument that was used to say why there were differences in cultures, or different people groups. This is right for this people group or this time over here, but there's this is right for this people group or time period or culture over here. But what we've seen more recently, this has been, in, relativism has been increasingly situated in the individual, which is number three. Another thing is radical individualism, the idea that everyone gets to write their own script. Right? So. Bel- so furthermore, the idea, since we be, there's a belief that there's no overarching narrative, there's no meaning for life that's inherent in the universe, right? The world exists, it just is. So who gets to define your purpose? Because we still do want a purpose, which is interesting. We still do want to have meaning in our life. So who gets to, who gets to write that story? Well, you do. You get to write your own story. In times past, people drew their identity and their sense of responsibility in relation to their community, the family that you belong to, the clan, the tribe, the country. What you were born into is what you were. That was your identity. That was your story. People thought in terms of what is best for the tribe. But now, people rather think, what will make me the most happy? The culture is increasingly telling people that your own personal happiness is is paramount. Do what makes you happy. It's interesting, like, go watch a kid's show or a kid's movie. I feel like there's only one lesson. Believe in yourself. I, I, that's like That and variations of it seem to be the only moral lesson that's being taught. Um, it's because of this. Beyond that, you get to define for yourself what is true. And, and I'll point this out. Um, there's a, a, another famous uh, Supreme Court case... Uh, Planned Parenthood versus versus Casey, a decision concerning abortion rights in 1992 and Justice Kennedy wrote this this line, this kind of infamous line really, but he says, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, of the mystery of human life. Pretty grandiose. This idea of radical individualism definitely plays into this. Number four is the sexual revolution right? Not the, the idea that not only is your own personal happiness of paramount importance, but sexual freedom is paramount to your happiness. The 1960s saw a rise in the sexual revolution, a revolt against the traditional view of sex, which, which by the way, was largely a, a Christian sexual ethic. Sex outside of marriage was wrong. Um, sex before marriage, um, all different kinds of things like that. Divorce was very wrong. Um, and so it was a radical individualism applied to sex. It's your body. Do with it what you want. Who, who is anyone? Why should anyone tell you what to do with your body? It's interesting that like that argument right there holds, carries a lot of weight with this generation. Who, who are you to tell me what to do with, with my body? It's my body. So sexual freedom, which is so personal and so pleasurable, is seen as the highest form, the highest expression of personal freedom. The sexual revolution was really only able to get legs because of two things that really, really helped it out. One was the invention of reliable contraception, and the second was the uh, the vast expansion and legalization of abortion. The reason why is because it wasn't feasible earlier in earlier generations to say you can have sex with whoever you want to inside, outside of marriage, because there is a natural consequence, pregnancy. But whenever, but whenever the, the consequence, pregnancy, was able to be either aborted or prevented, that allowed this, this worldview to have, to have some legs behind it. And so the idea is that if sexual freedom is paramount to individual freedom and happiness, then you can see how the logic was pressed even further. It wasn't enough to say, you know, just you can have sex outside of marriage. This, if this is the highest form of freedom, then it gets pressed even further, right, to every form of sexual expression, activity, and identity. Before, sex was something you did. Interesting now, sex is a defining aspect of who you are because it's been so rooted in, in, our, in writing your own story. Number five, this is a weird word, but it's interesting in, in, in history and in church history, is Gnosticism. Right? This is the idea that the, the body and the, uh, there's a difference between the body and the mind, and there's a secret knowledge. Gnosticism is a very ancient heresy, right? It was around actually before the church, early on. And you can see early on, the early church dealt with it. And Paul, in some of his letters, seems like he's addressing early versions of it. And so it's something that that was around for the the early years of the church. Um, And basically, this belief taught that the physical world, matter, was the problem. Our bodies, the physical world, they were bad, they were broken, people were experiencing trouble in the world. Said, this world, is, it's bad, it's not right. And what really matters is the spiritual. That's what's really important. And the physical should actually be escaped. So, so I would say people who were Gnostics at the time when the gospel was being preached probably would have been offended that Jesus, Jesus resurrected. He escaped the body. Why would he take it back up again? So, the physical should be escaped. This, this word comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge, because the Gnostics believed that their followers possessed secret knowledge, right? That was only accessible to them, to the initiated. In the modern trans movement, it seems like it's borrowing, like Satan is just kind of reskinning this old heresy, right? It's gaining traction. The body is broken and bad and unreliable, the spirit, the hidden, that's what's real. And only you can possess spiritual knowledge about the real view. And as you shed away the untrue of the body, you'll find salvation. Sounds pretty familiar. I'll just say, I think Satan uses what works. Lastly is uh, post Christendom, removing the, guard, the former cultural guardrails. So Christendom is a word, a word that refers to the Christian world. Uh, really, that means the world that is influenced and shaped by Christianity. And no doubt about it, the Western world has largely been shaped by the Greeks and by Christianity. Um, the West has been it, shaped so much by Christianity in, in different areas. right? And ever since Constantine you know, uh, accepted Christ, whatever you make of Constantine, <laughs> uh, but everything that followed from that, right, our, our politics, our ethics, our values, our priorities, our art, our stories, our music, the ordering of society, so much of the West, you know, uh, is organized according to Christian categories. And I'll put it this way, for a long time in the West, Christianity was like the default setting. You know, you buy a computer and it has like apps that are already built in. Like, it's almost like in the Christian, like in Christendom, that's what it was. If someone talked about God, you know, they automatically thought, oh, the Christian God, not a God of another religion. Right, so Christendom, though, and so this was the basic worldview that's kind of ruled in the West for a long time. However, Christendom has been on the decline for generations, meaning it doesn't seem to have the same cultural cachet that it once did. I mean, even just, for example, if someone is to run for office, go back 50 years, could you really have a good chance at running for office if you weren't a religious, church-going person, especially a Protestant, right? Well, now that doesn't seem like it's as much of a big deal. In fact, it may even hurt you to do that right? And so with this, with the decline of Christendom, and there's, you could say there's good and bad about cultural Christianity, right? There's challenges and benefits, but regardless, one of the things that with with some of the norms that have guided culture, the things we all assumed were right and wrong, true and false, those have kind of gone away. The demise of cultural Christianity is its own conversations, but for our purpose, it's important to see that the mood has changed. People largely don't care what Christians have to say about their behavior anymore, And so a lot of the guardrails of culture have been deconstructed um, and been moved away. So for all the talk about social progress, I would say it really seems like it's just the opposite. All of this, to me, doesn't seem like people are are building a new, stronger morality, a stronger family. It seems like we're going to tear down old systems, burn it all down. We're going to transgress boundaries and so all in the name of the freedom of the individual to divine their own reality and their own happiness. There's a lot of, <laughs> a lot of streams of philosophy and beliefs and things that have been in our culture for hundreds of years that have, I believe have got us to this point. Uh, and so if you want to know more on this, Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, is a really good version of that. It's very dense. If you want the Cliff Notes version, he rewrote <laughs> a version of it called Strange New World, which is the one I'd commend to you probably. So, why is this movement found acceptance so quickly? And I'll roll through this pretty quickly. Um, You know, why is this caught fire? Number one, I think, just this idea of progression. We're continuing the logic of the sexual revolution. For those who have already accepted the logic of the sexual revolution, uh, sexual freedom being paramount to personal happiness, if that's true then why would there be, there's, there's no built-in breaks. There's no break in like, you know, like, oh, well, this is true this far, but you don't go that far. It, it, we just keep on going. We keep progressing, it seems, if you want to think of it that way. If it's true, if then if the idea is this must be true for everyone, then even those who have sexual tastes or inclinations that were formerly looked down upon... Well, maybe we need to re-examine those. And you see this, you know, keep your eyes open, like there's even moods changing on pedophilia, even changing the language that pedophilia doesn't seem uh, as odd, right? So using phrases like minor attracted persons to describe it. So because it's continuing the logic of the sexual revolution. Secondly, it's just the idea of messaging, right? How you advertise, how you message something does matter right? And I think this has been framed as a civil rights issue. And we're a country that loves rights, individual rights, and we all have our favorite rights. Some of us, it's guns, you know, like we, we love our gun rights. Other people, it's other our religious rights, our freedom of speech rights. We were a country that is built upon individual rights. So, and the one thing we don't want to be is a people that, you know, is considered oppressive or withholding people's rights. Nobody wants to be labeled as, as that or, or be considered, you know, an oppressor. You know, we want to be compassionate. It was a powerful argument when people started saying, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history on this, right? Because we can easily go back and look at the history books for people who are against this or against that, and be like, oh, we don't want to be that. So pe- the idea, the narrative is that, affirm- is that of affirmation of a person's chosen identity is compassionate. and To be a non-affirming is to be cruel, unjust, and oppressive. And I think there's something powerful in that messaging to people, right? It's been framed as, as a civil rights issue. Number three, uh, there, this is, there's something of a social contagion here. And I, I'm indebted to uh, Abigail Schreier wrote a book. It's on the back table. That's my copy. Please don't take it. But you can look at it <laughs> called Irreversible Damage, The Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters. And she makes some really interesting arguments uh, using this phrase, social contagion. And she's demonstrating how this movement is especially dangerous to girls, and, and I'll, I'll say this, it is common in, in our in our world for teens not to feel comfortable in their own body, right? You are all teens. You've been there, right? I'll get personal. I didn't go through puberty until I was la- on the back end of middle school, right? And you know, I was really self-conscious about it. And if I remember correctly, I like kind of like intentionally deepened my voice a bit, you know, and like your feet are bigger than the rest of you. And like, yeah, I, I just remember, like, I, I experienced that, some of you experienced that, right? Just not feeling comfortable in your body, wrestling with your identity. I think most of us did that in some way or another. And this can be mild. Like I said, you know, a guy going through puberty later than his friends, you know, a person who feels, you know, too skinny, too scrawny, wearing extra layers of clothes so they look bigger, or the opposite. Somebody who feels too big, who, who wears um, uh, larger clothes to kind of conceal their figure they don't feel comfortable with. You know, so those, those are common things, but it can also be more severe. People struggling with anorexia or bulimia or cutting or other forms of self-harm where these feelings are so strong they take more drastic steps. And while these struggles are often innate and they're, and they're often widely experienced, one thing that we have learned about teens and behaviors like this is often they are learned. Often when you have a community of people and one person begins cutting, it's not, it's not uncommon, sadly, that other people in that friend group begin doing something likewise, the same with anorexia. And we're also seeing something similar to that in the, in the transgender movement, right? It's similar to how there are fads in clothing, hairstyle, trendy language. These things are spread free, freely, but so are behaviors, and often dangerous ones, are spread within a group. And so teens who wrestle with feelings they don't understand, you don't feel comfortable sharing them with their parents or another trusted adult, they can, you can easily find a community of people who seem to understand your struggles, can offer something explanatory about it, and can provide an answer. You know, you're not feeling at home in your body, you know, and maybe they're saying, it's, it's not just that, you know, I know you're, you're, you know you're a girl who just doesn't like the color pink, you know, you, you, you like sports, you, mean you don't care about girly stuff, you know, maybe, maybe you really are a boy. That's kind, of, that's kind of how it's, it's said right now. My, my mom, growing up, was a tomboy, right? She played football and punched boys, okay? But there's an idea now that that's, that's not a phase. That could be the true you. And there's this idea being spread, and I think it's especially affecting girls. And this isn't to minimize the movement. It's not to minimize the struggle that people really feel. But transgender, I'll say this, transgenderism is trendy right now. If there are so many incentives to come out as transgender. If, I mean, if you're, if you're somebody who doesn't feel good about yourself, if you were to come out and say, I, I think I'm gay, or I think I'm bi, or I think I'm actually a boy, or I'm this or that, like, there is a whole world that will embrace you and celebrate you. You can say, I think these are my pronouns. And adults feel that they have to listen to you and obey you in that. Like, there's a lot of incentive right now right, to to do that. And so I think it would be wise for us to understand that that, that's part of what's going on. Fourthly, and I I think this is really important, is that I think what we're hearing right now is a false gospel. And, And what I mean by that is it's not just an idea or craze, that it's answering some fundamental, it says, yes, there's a problem, right? The gospel is, yes, there's a problem. Is that we are sinners. That is the problem. We are broken. We are separated from our, from our creator, right? But there, you know, and there's, there's, there's good news, though, that Jesus came, died for your sins, came to make a way so that you can be forgiven and connected with your creator forever, born again, have new life, experience peace and joy, right? There's problem and solution. This is offering another gospel in a way. What's the problem? You have feelings, you know, that you have not belonging, of not belonging in your body, right? And there is sin as well, right? You're feeling rejection in the world. You're suppressing your true identity, right? Or you're experiencing transphobia in the world. And what's salvation? I mean, living to your true self, being born again. Literally, like you, you take a new name, you take new pronouns, you take a new dress, you present yourself as a whole new person, right? You can see, like, that it's that has the. It's a false gospel that has, that's trying to mimic the power of it. And so I would like to take a few moments, and I, hopefully that explains a little bit of, of what this what's going on, and there's so much more to be said about this. How we got here and you know a few reasons why I think it's catching on. But I do think I want to offer some challenges to the movement, right? Col- uh, Colossians 2 says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. I, I have just uh, seven points here. And by the way, much of this, much of my outline, I'm actually um, borrowing from God and the transgender debate. Very good book, very readable, very accessible. And we do have copies you can pick up for sale uh, in the back uh, for that. But number one is that the movement really is incoherent and incompatible with other progressive ideas. Meaning this, the transgender ideology is, is really not very internally coherent. It doesn't do well, doesn't deal with challenges well. That's why often silence is what they're going for. You know, like, you know, not a lot of criticize, not a lot of question. It's because there's so many conflicting ideas within the movement itself, it's kind of hard to keep track of, that are, that are actually self-defeating. I'm not going to get into all of them, but just the idea that, you know, it's considered biological sex and gender identity are considered to be distinct, and gender is the, more emotion, uh, is, is, is the more important, the more innate, right? It's considered like, hey, your gender is your true identity, the real you, and a person, I've even heard people say recently, like, people know almost from the womb what their gender is, um, and th- th- this is a truth waiting to be discovered, yet there's different things that are even said about gender. Some will say, you know, like I said, this is innate, this is important, this is, this is essential to who you are. There's others who say gender is said to exist on, an, on, a, on a spectrum, and gender can be fluid, something that you kind of shift in and out of and move to and from, something people drift into and out of. Yet, there's also an argument that gender is not, this, is not a real thing at all. Rather, it's a social construct, that it's something that, w- that was created, often by men, to categorize and control people. And you have to ask, well, which one is it? Is gender this immutable, essential part of who you are, or is it something that's just made up in, in, this, in social work? Which, which one is it? But you hear both. There's a lot of incoherence in, it, in the movement itself. It also conflicts with other aspects of progressivism. And, and, and I would ask this, you know, like how, how does feminism as it is currently constructed exist within the same progressive framework as transgenderism? I don't really know. If, if feminism at its best exists to help women reach equality at every level of society and promote the interests of women. How is that even possible if we can't define what a woman is? It's it's hard to see these two not coming into conflict with one another. In fact, you have people in... uh, J.K. Rowling you may be familiar with. She wrote Harry Potter. Um, She began questioning this because she's very much a feminist, and she's saying, well, hey, she has problems with the transgender movement, and she's been, like, ostracized, okay? She's called a TERF, a trans-exclusionary radical feminist, right? There's, like... So there's, there's conflict within this movement, right? And it really, for feminism to work, there has to be a clear idea of what it means to be feminine. And you'd see, if, if, put, if simply putting on women's clothing, speaking in a higher register of voice, pre- just saying you're a woman, if that's what it means to be a woman, then are, are feminists willing to sign on to that? In most cases, no. But it also, I think that with the LGB and the T, I think, conflict, right? A gay man's sexuality is based on the gender binary. He is by definition someone who is not attracted to women, the opposite sex, but the same sex attracted He's attracted to men. The same is true likewise of lesbians, right? And bisexual people are attracted to both. Yet transgenderism kind of strikes at all of those, right? So, instead, because it says that sex has nothing to do with it at all. Gender is what matters. And so it it starts getting really really messy. And this is am granted this is an odd example, but if you have two gay men in a relationship, and, and and one of them begins to transition and say I'm now a trans woman, does the does the other man suddenly become a heterosexual? No. You see that there's 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 challenges in definition, where where transgenderism really kind of butts up against the LGB and just other other areas. So I think there are problems with it even there. Two. Uh, it undermines uh, womanhood and motherhood. And we believe that womanhood is more than just an appearance of a woman's body. And I think transgenderism cheapens womanhood by commuting that to be a woman, you only have to appear and act like one, and you are a woman. But this should be deeply offensive <laughs> as a, if you're a woman, that, that anybody can be a woman. If you just say that you are, right? I mean, and I'll give you an analogy, right? We rightfully believe that if, that if somebody, you know, puts on, paints their skin black and wears blackface and tries to act and speak as someone who is black, we say, that's really offensive, <laughs> right? You know, that people get kicked out of office for that kind of thing, right? It's considered shameful, rightfully so. But that's essentially what drag queens and trans is kind of doing. It's pretending, saying, I'm a woman if I just act like, and I, I cosplay, if I can say it that way. Likewise, it cheapens motherhood. If motherhood is, has nothing to do with the biological realities of a woman, then rather, you, motherhood doesn't exist as a category anymore. If a man can be a mother... The motherhood doesn't really exist, Like at some point when we've expanded the definition of words, we've gotten to a place where it doesn't, it's, it doesn't even exist anymore. Like, as another example, like if you try to play football, but there's no end zone, there's no, there's no foul, there's no first down, at some point you're like, what are we even doing, and there's not even a game anymore, right? We've expanded the boundaries so far to include everything, but there's, you've left with, with nothing. So expanding the categories of what it means to be a woman is not compassionate or real, it's transgressive and destructive. I'm going to say in all these movements, it's almost always women and children who are hurt the most. Number three, uh, this, this movement really undermines social stability. I just don't think it's healthy for any society to encourage transgenderism as, pod- as positive and normal as a lifestyle. I think this does create confusion. We need some baseline definitions of man and woman if we're going to function as a society. If we can't even agree about the very fundamentals, there's things that we're, any nation, any people, any church is always going to disagree about, right? But it's coming down to where we can't even under, agree with what a person is anymore. We can't even define what man or woman is, right? And in, 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 in the name of tolerance and fairness, if we want every gender identity to be, to be accepted equally, and I think one of the outcomes of that is we're going to begin creating public policies and laws that are based on falsehood, based on things that are just not true. And I don't think it's good for any civilization to do this. I think it will undermine justice when you force people to affirm what they know to be false. Number four, uh, this relies on problematic medical philosophy. And I'll be honest, this is something we could have spent our entire time on, but I am not a medical person. I'm not in the medical field. Uh, But this is a big issue when you're talking about transgenderism. In the case of gender dysphoria, as I said, there's a disconnect between one one's body and how that person perceives themselves, where the body and the emotions are out of alignment. And I'm actually indebted to Kevin DeYoung for this argument. He wrote a blog that I cannot remember, but I do remember reading it. But if I can find it, I'll email it to you. And he asked this question, right? If there is a, um, if there's a excuse me a divergence between one's body and one's experience of how they feel emotionally and mentally. Why is this per solution proposed that the body must be made to align with the feelings rather than the other way around? Why is that the solution that we must insist upon? Why is that the compassionate thing to do? Isn't it easier, safer, less expensive, less dangerous, and just all around wiser to help people feel at a home in their body rather than suggest that they need to buy all new clothes? If they're, if they're young, take puberty blockers. Begin to take cross-sex hormones, which are expensive and you'll have to take for the rest of your life. Or begin amputating healthy body parts. Why is that the solution and not the other way around? To help somebody who's experiencing true emotional trauma, helping them feel at home in their body rather than the other way around. And why is that considered gender-affirming care? I don't believe it is. I'm gonna give you another analogy. If a woman does not feel at home in her body and she feels like she's overweight, and so she begins going on extreme dieting and then starving herself and then binging and purging in bulimia and she begins to waste away until she weighs under 100 pounds, right? There's obviously a, a difference between the health of her body, what her body's physically telling her and what she feels is true about it, what she thinks she's looking like. Would it be compassionate to come and say, I, I, I affirm you and what you believe about yourself. I, I, I want to help you keep doing what you're doing. That's deadly. That's not loving, and yet we're doing that with transgenderism. Thankfully, I think more and more people are waking up to the dangers of putting children on puberty blockers at a young age. The the UK's National Health Service, the NHS, recently uh, put restrictions on treating people under the age with puberty blockers. They no longer recommend that that children under the age of 18 change their pronouns. That's a good thing, right? They've, 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 they've hit the brakes on this. They found that most kids who identify as trans honestly are going through a phase, and they take more of a watch-and-see mentality, and the vast majority of them age out of it. We just don't know all the consequences medically of putting kids on puberty blockers and giving them cross-sex hormones. We're essentially medically experimenting on a generation. And sadly, I mean, well... I may have that point later on. I'm going to hold off. i got another point on that. but Move on to number five. This undermines parental rights. It, it, it doesn't seem to make, make sense that children are not allowed to buy cigarettes, they're not allowed to buy alcohol, can't buy a rated R ticket to a movie, can't vote, can't drive, can't take Advil at school for a headache. But can go to Planned Parenthood. Say that they feel like they're the opposite gender and receive a prescription for cross-gender cross-sex hormones after one visit. This is not right. We recognize that, that, that children are not autonomous, right They lack the experience, knowledge and wisdom to make decisions that could harm themselves or others. And within, that's why God gave them parents, and it's our responsibility to say no," <laughs> at times, for your good, no. And yet, trans activists insist that trans people know who they are, deeply who they are, and that for anybody, even their parents, to say no is, is oppressive. You're, you're, you're saying that they don't exist. You're denying their fundamental existence and their reality. And so, in many cases, parents are seen as the problem. It just doesn't make sense for a child to obtain, to, to go through all this. And, I, and you were seeing that parents' rights can be undermined. And I think this, this undermining of society and separation of parent from child uh, is very dangerous. Number six, this movement ignores its own refugees. It isn't hard for a person struggling uh, with gender dysphoria to find a trans-affirming community online. It's not hard. Google it. Right? It's also not hard to find uh, a community of disillusioned deed transitioners online as well. Uh, if you guys know what reddit is it's a messaging board app and website and i i i've got on there a couple times there's a a d transitioners subreddit um and earlier on it had 20 something thousand and my, my my most recent check this past week had about 41,000 people who are de-transitioning in some sense what that means is they took certain steps to transition to another gender to another and you know and then they had regret and now they're detransitioning; they're going back. And it is some of the saddest stuff you'll read. It's people who, it's, it's girls who are 20 years old who surgically had, it's called top surgery, had their breasts removed, uh, went on hormones, their voice, they now speak and it, it sound, a voice as deep as mine or deeper for the rest of their life. Um, the hormones they've taken have made their bones brittle. They're at risk for osteoporosis. And now they're like, what do I do? Like, I can't. They try to go back to to female, but I'm now sterile. I can never have children. Like, they don't know what to do. They regret. And how do you think that they are accepted within the trans movement? They are not accepted. Oftentimes, they are mocked. They are sidelined. They are ignored. They are delegitimized because they're speaking against the narrative. It's, it's far worse than, you know, like, you know, Christians. We have a hard time when somebody, like, accepts the faith and then they, like, reject Christ and say, you know, Christ doesn't exist. He's not Lord. It's all hogwash. They leave. It's like, you know, this is far, far worse. Their voices are silenced, mocked, and rejected. And that should tell us something. Sevenly, se- sorry, seventh, not seventhly, seven, uh, all, honestly, this, it simply can't deliver on its promises. This movement cannot deliver on what it says. Transgenderism, I believe, is a false gospel, one among many. The, re- the need is real. It is a real problem. There are, there are teens, there are adults, there are people who just do not feel right in their own body, believe their body is lying to them, feel that they don't belong. That's real, right? What is decided, described as gender dysphoria within the psychological community, that's, that's real. But this is not the answer. We believe that God made us male and female. But we also believe that sin corrupts, that sin confuses God's good order. But sin cannot fundamentally change the reality that we live in. This is God's world, and it runs according to God's rules. And we can try to you know, butt up against it, but we can't change fundamental reality. A young man could do everything he wants. He can spend all of his time, his money, his clothing, on hormone surgery, changing his name, his manner conforming everything he can his external experience to that of a woman, but he cannot change his fundamental being that God has made him in. And eventually, reality will will have his say, and, and this person will be let down and disappointed and devastated. And at the resurrection, we will all be resurrected in the bodies that God gave us in the first place. And just think, if, if anyone lives according to a falsehood, something that's fundamentally at odds with reality, just that, that's never going to bring anyone peace. It can be pleasing. We can, we can delude ourselves for a long time. We can divert ourselves. We can pretend. But eventually, reality has its say. We believe that, however, in all of this, a lot of this can be sad and scary and frustrating and discouraging, but I, I do want to end my time with this. We believe that Christ is a powerful Savior. We believe that he knows, that, I love the Psalms, it says he knows our frame, he knows that we are dust. And it isn't just our souls that need redeeming, but our bodies. I think it's, it's important that Christians would do well to have a vigorous doctrine of the resurrection when dealing with this issue. God does not see our bodies as discardable or as unnecessary, but Jesus took on flesh so that he could free our, the sin that has destroyed our bodies and our souls. And it's important that God didn't say, well, you're just going to die and go to heaven. You'll be a spirit forever. Your body will stay here in the dirt. No, he sees our bodies as essential to who we are, and that's why our the hope for the Christian is resurrection. This is the hope that we all need, and I think that as we talk about the gospel later on, this is a powerful aspect or facet of the gospel for those who struggle with gender dysphoria. I hope that's helpful, explaining a little bit in, in a short amount of time what's going on, how we got here, and, and some, some problems with it. There's so much more that can be said on all of this, um, but I think we're going to go ahead and take a 10-minute break, and so use the bathroom, get something to eat or drink, and we'll, we'll start here in just a few minutes.